Green Side, the IGA podcast. Also, Mike McCoy, the 2013 USA. Johnson, now a two-time major champion after becoming the winner of the 144th Open Championship. Welcome to Greenside, the IGA podcast. Clint Brown here with you. Got Chad Pitts joining in and our guest Rick Tegmeyer, CG, CS, and MG. Uh, we'll get into those a little bit later, but also director of grounds at Des Moines Golf uh, here in West Des Moines. Uh, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Clint. Thank you, Chad. Well, I'm glad I caught you before you're, you're heading south or headed to, to warm weather, right? That's correct. I leave on Sunday. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, why don't we just start at the beginning? I uh, I know you're originally from Rockford, Iowa, and you you started your your kind of turf career pretty early, didn't you? I did. I started uh, a long time ago, uh, 1973, just as I was 13 years old. Went up uh, that first year and just kind of helped uh, cut sod, lay sod on some car paths and things like that. And then uh, the next year, they called me back and said, hey, do you want to start uh, working on the golf course? And at that time, my grandfather had sold the farm uh, a few years earlier. And and, uh, and uh, so there was no opportunity really for me to go into farming, which is what I wanted to do. So I went to work on the golf course and really found out that I that I enjoyed it. And uh, first couple of years were a little rough, just mowing around trees with a push mower and an old heavy weed eater, and but then gradually worked my way up uh, to mowing and changing cups and running the golf course. Rick, would you say your your kind of interest and, and passion for that kind of just just grew from there? I, it really did. I, I really, when I was 16, 17 years old, I started to really get into what we were doing on the golf course. Uh, it was just a little nine-hole golf course, but uh, Ed Batty, who was our – our uh, greens chairman at the time, he was a local banker. He, he was really intense. He was really passionate about the golf course and he really uh, sparked young people like me to, to uh, come out and work and then possibly look at it as a career. We'd had some other people that, uh, that had gone on before me, like John Austin. There's a guy mm-hmm. named Chuck Chapman. Uh, and John had a long career here in Iowa also. So I kind of followed those guys and, and uh, I guess the rest is history. Well, I was going to mention, I, you know, Rockford, Iowa has produced a, a lot of superintendents. I looked it up yesterday, has about 900 people. I don't know how big it was when you were a kid, but for a, for a town that size to, to turn out several superintendents, pretty, pretty neat, isn't it? It was, it was, it was really a neat system that, uh, that Ed had developed and that little golf course, uh, you know, they even were a nine hole or, you know, the uh, Iowa golf high school state champion one year, I think, in in, uh, whatever class it was, class A or class 2A, but Mm -hmm. a lot of good golfers there. Oh, be darned. So uh, went off to college. Tell tell us about that uh, as far as kind of continuing your career. Okay, so uh, when I was was 17, Ed helped me get a school loan uh, to go to college. Uh, I went to Hawkeye Community College in Waterloo. That was a two-year program. I don't know what happened at Iowa State. I had applied at Iowa State, but I don't know if it was uh, my grades were not good enough or my I didn't have the money or whatever. So I decided to go the two-year route. I went to Hawkeye those two years, really enjoyed it. I had a great instructor named Pete Birch. Uh, he was a former golf course superintendent out in uh, New York and came to Iowa. And uh, 
he helped us move right along. And when I graduated in the spring of 1980, uh, I interviewed two places that day. I interviewed first at Urbandale Country Club in Urbandale, Iowa, and then I interviewed at Des Moines Golf and Country Club. And I was just blown away by Des Moines Golf. I'd never seen, you know, a 36-hole operation. <laughs> really, I'd never seen an 18-hole operation. And uh, I did not get the Des Moines Golf job at that time. I got the Urbandale job, went to work there. Uh, there was a superintendent named Gene Jennings. Gene was the superintendent out of Hyperion. And he kind of took me under his wing and, and said, hey, if you want to make this as a career and you want to work on an 18-hole club, uh, you got to go somewhere else besides Urbandale. So he helped line me up to go to Hinsdale Golf Club in Chicago. Uh, I went there as an assistant in the spring of 82. Uh, worked there one year, uh, had a little turmoil there. I did. I realized I really hated Chicago. Chicago is a great city to visit, but I didn't like living there. I couldn't hunt or fish. All my friends were back here. And at that time in the, in the fall of 82, you know, December of 82, there was a job opening at Des Moines Golf. I applied for it and uh, I became the North Course Superintendent in the spring of, or in January of, uh, I guess, February of 83, I started back here. So uh, 10 days later, I went on a blind date, met my wife and been kind of here ever since. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Rick, going back a little bit uh, to, to your college, I'm just curious, at, at that time, was it a lot of um, hands-on stuff or was it a mix of both, you know, book stuff and getting out in the in the field per se? Well, what was great about Hawkeye was it, it was it was definitely some book stuff, especially the soils class, chemistry classes, things like that. Mm -hmm. The turf side of things, Pete, uh, we you know, we went over you know, everything turf grass in the books, but also we had a golf green, a fairway and a tee that we helped take care of on property. And then also we would go out to other golf courses and work. Uh, I, I went to work uh, for Charlie Pribble, uh, raking some bunkers one time after a big uh, rainstorm, just, just to experience that. That was, that was quite an experience getting to know Charlie and do that. Uh, we did work experiences. I did mine at Rockford since I was from Rockford. It just, it made more sense to me to do it at home and I could live at home, but mm -hmm. it, it was a mixture of both really. Uh, Rick, we, we've talked about Charlie a little bit on, on some other podcasts. Uh, what, what do you remember about Charlie Pribble? Cause he sounds like it's pretty, pretty good guy, pretty neat guy. Charlie was, Charlie was very well versed in uh, who he was and what he did. He was a little gruff, uh, Charlie, I guess what, what attracted me to Charlie is probably because I'm very much like him. Uh, there's no gray in our life. Everything's pretty much black and white. And uh, Charlie was not afraid to say what he thought. Uh, if he wasn't, if you weren't doing the job right, he'd tell you. Uh, just a really good guy. He and I, uh, later in life, when, when I was in Cedar Rapids and he was in Cedar Rapids at Airport National, uh, we became great friends and and uh, he was a great colleague and and. Uh, a mentor of mine, really. Uh, Rick, uh, going going back to to uh, a couple of your titles there, will you just kind of tell us and, and fill in the, the listeners about the CGCS uh, distinction? Okay, CGCS is is uh, administered through the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, and it stands for Certified Golf Course Superintendent. 
1985, I became eligible at that time to become a class A superintendent. Uh, you had to work three years as a superintendent on the golf course, and then you had to put in another three years uh, before you could take the CGCS exam. Uh, so in, in the summer of 85, I took the exam. Uh, Nick Christians at Iowa State was my was my proctor and uh, took the exam. And uh, luckily, I passed it. I was 25 years old, and uh, I've carried on that distinction now for, I guess, the next 40 years or so. I, uh, I'll be recert you recertify every five years by doing continuing education points. And so, uh, yeah, I think it'll be the eighth time that I'll be recertified. Is that a multiple, you know, multiple choice test? Is it, is it a combination of written test and on, on. At, at, at the time I took the test, Chad, it was an open book test. It was six different parts, uh, you know, agronomy. I, I don't remember all the parts at that time, but uh it was a time test. It was multiple choice. There were some essay, uh, you know, rules of golf, those types of things. Rules of golf one was was pretty difficult, I remember, at that time because uh, you just had that little teeny handbook that you had to work off of. I don't know if you remember those, but. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was <laughs> it was tough for me. So and there, you know, it's like you said, it's a it's a process. It's probably not a. It, it certainly doesn't sound like an easy test at all. Um, and so there's a, you know, there's a pride factor, I'm sure, to earning that designation. I mean, it's it's something a lot of people maybe haven't taken the time to do, I believe, if, if you look around at all the superintendents all over the place. But it's, it's a... Yeah, I, I don't know the exact number, but I think there's like, uh, it's right around 2,000 certified superintendents across the world. Some Some number like that. So, you know, and for me, not not going to a four year college, uh, you know, I went back and took some two year or took some classes with uh, with some Iowa State professors just to broaden my horizon after I graduated. But uh, not having a four year degree was something that I felt uh, for me to continue in my career. I needed to become certified. So that's that's why I did it. And I worked pretty hard at that time. I remember studying and and pass the test. Rick, so you said you you, you came back to Iowa um, from, from Chicago and that you went to Des Moines Golf from there. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, I became the North Course Superintendent. So I worked under Bill Byers, who, who was my predecessor here. Bill was here for 49 years. Uh, and at that time, he had a superintendent on each golf course. And I became the North Course Superintendent in 83. So. Okay. And you, and you were there how, how long? I was here from 83 to the fall of uh, 89. Mm -hmm. uh, in 87, we did a major uh, renovation on the North Course. I was I was involved in that. I, I had had an opportunity to, to, to go to another club in the Midwest, but turned that down uh, because I had the chance here to Des Moines Golf to do some construction. I really wanted to do that. And so I stayed uh, through that. And then in the uh, late fall of 89, uh, Elmcrest Country Club in Cedar Rapids came available, and I interviewed and, and was lucky enough to get that job. Rick, one of my one of my favorite stories you like to tell, I want to have you I want to have you tell it here uh, as we're on air. Tell us about uh, kind of how you you went from Des Moines Golf to uh, to Elmcrest. I, I think maybe you're having a review with with uh, Bill Byers, and and uh, tell us about that. 
Okay, so uh, when I sat down with Bill, uh, he asked me, he said, what, what do you want to do in your career? And I, and I told him, I, I flat told him, I said, I want to sit in your chair and be superintendent of Moine Golf. And he said, well, the only way you can do that is to leave. <laughs> and uh, so I, I took his advice. I left, uh, you know, went to Elmcrest for 17 years. And then uh, when Bill decided to retire, uh, he called me up and said, hey, I'm going to retire, get your resume ready. And I applied. And I think at that time, there was like 175 people that applied for the job. Oh, wow. And, and I was lucky enough to, to be, you know, one of the final three candidates or so. And they came and played. Uh, a contingent of people came from Des Moines Golf and played Elmcrest and, uh, and decided, I guess, I was the guy. Well, Rick, awesome. it's interesting with Bill being there 49 years, I did a little, and you came in, 20, was it 2006 when you took over? Yeah, two, 2000, the fall of 2006, I came back here. Okay, so since essentially 1957, 1958, there's been two superintendents at Des Moines Golf, if I'm doing that math right. that's Well, since 1923, there's been four of us. Wow. Four? Wow. And since hundred years, that's awesome. And since eighteen ninety seven, uh, there's been seven of those. I'm the seventh. That's that's, that's incredible. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. You know, kind of a, kind of a weird deal. Uh, in nineteen, virtually nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, there was a guy named Joe Roseman, who yep. was the superintendent yeah. here. And Joe Joe left, went back to his native Illinois. He moved to Chicago. And he started a, a company called the Roseman Mower Co Corporation. He was also a golf pro slash superintendent. He did many things. He did a, he started doing some irrigation work underground and things like that. But one of the things he did was he uh, he built this Roseman mower. And the very first mower, a uh, gang mower that I ever used on a golf course was a Roseman. So kind of full circle with him. And yeah. I actually... Actually, I have some of Joe's golf clubs, his putter uh, with his name on it, and some other uh, hickory shafted irons that uh, that mean a lot to me to have. So yeah, and I knew he was into the club business too. And I know you're you're a history buff yourself, Rick. And and I'll give you credit because um, I think you were the one who found the the documents the first time we were really able to officially know that the IGA was formed in 1900 at the Des Moines Golf and Country Club prior to the the first ever state amateur and I think you were the one who who sent us the document you had found when you were looking through files and stuff to it was always what we thought but we never really had confirmation until yeah, we saw yeah. well, we had we had a document uh, of our history uh, that I had and uh, worked with Bill Dickens on that. And, and we tried to determine the first four or five spots where the IGA hosted uh, their amateur event each year. That was cool stuff. Rick, uh, what do you remember from those days at Elmcrest, including a pretty cool uh, relationship that you developed with Zach Johnson? You know, Elmcrest was a, uh, a really great place to work. I, I truly loved it there. Uh, I worked with, you know, Larry Glatson at the time and, and, uh, we became a very uh, formidable team, I guess you'd call it. Uh, we, we did a lot of different things to that golf course. I was very proud of the work we did. Uh, the club really supported what I was doing and 
to be honest with you, when Des Moines Golf came open, I didn't want to leave. I I was enjoying what I was doing. I enjoyed the lifestyle we had. Uh, but but Sherry, my wife, was very adamant. She said, you know, you're 45 years old at the time. And she's like, you're not going to be happy if you don't try for the Des Moines golf job. And uh, again, I was very apprehensive. Now, I was probably more apprehensive about not getting the job because I knew so many people would try to get it. Uh, but but Elmcrest was a a fun club. It was it was a, we always had a full membership. Uh, we struggled a little bit with some money wise, you know, those early years. But they had a great history with Charlie Burkhart and Marsha Martelier, uh, two longtime pro and superintendent combinations, and and it was really fun to work with Larry for those 17 years that I worked with him. Uh, he was just a an ultimate professional to be around and. Uh, everything he did was infectious, you know, for golf. And I really learned the value of uh, of young kids and, and treating them with respect and trying to teach them golf. And, you know, and that, there was five kids. We, we allowed fivesomes at Elmcrest, and there was five kids that played every day, uh, you know, probably from when they were 10 years old on. And and one of those being Zach and and uh, became good friends with him, you know, so – and we've we've maintained that friendship over the years, so it's been pretty cool for me. Well, and I know you said you know you you were there for his first master, so that was probably pretty cool for you, wasn't it? It, it was, you know, uh, to be there his first masters, uh, and it was uh, it was actually Jack Nicholas's last ma competitive masters. Okay, and when Zach had teed off on number ten, and Zach obviously or Jack obviously teed off on number one, and when Zach got to number nine, his last hole, Jack was on eighteen, and Jack backed away from the putt so Zach could putt out on nine, uh, you know, because he knew that there would be a lot of applause. It was it was pretty cool to see to see that happen. Zach missed the cut that year, but it was just neat kind of being there in that moment. And it's pretty surreal to be part of that history. Rick, were you there when, when he won it or do you remember, what do you remember from that, from that day? I, I was not, I was not there. I okay. cut to Des Moines golf. I, I can remember uh, we had a board president at the time, Randy Stefani. I told Randy, I said, Zach's going to win it this year. And, uh, that particular Sunday afternoon, uh, and I don't remember what the circumstances were, but my parents were here in town, and uh, we had we had I had to take them back to Rockford from Des Moines. Okay. And uh, I listened to it the whole way on satellite radio, and we got to Rockford, and uh, got it on the TV, and I got to see him win. You know, finish the last hole or two. Uh, and that was pretty cool because the ride back to Des Moines went pretty fast. I was on the phone with many people at the time. It was pretty cool. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty cool. And you've you know obviously been able to to follow him to Ryder Cups and Presidents Cups, and you know he's going to be the Ryder Cup captain. So pretty pretty proud, I'm sure. Uh, you know that you, you've known him for for this long. You know you knew him when. You know. Yeah, you know it, it's uh, I I don't take that friendship lightly either. Sure. You know I I try to be. Uh, respect his privacy you know it, it's kind of cool we 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 text uh back and forth every so often uh i was at manhattan deli the other day here in des moines uh, right after new year's with my with my daughter and her husband 
And that's where Zach used to go all the time for lunch mm -hmm. when he was at Drake. So I texted him a picture and he responded immediately. He says, man, I wish I was there. He, he, he was jealous that we were there and he wasn't. So that's just little awesome. things like that, you yeah. know, kind of special relationship. It's kind of fun. Rick, uh, along the kind of the Elmcrest uh, line here, I, it's a story I've always wanted to ask you about, but I've always just afraid you'd be like, ah, I don't, not sure I remember that one. But then I, I just found out the other day, this story actually appeared in golf digest in, you know, things that happened to, to superintendents. Uh, tell us a story about, I think the irrigation went down and you guys were pulling an all nighter and all of a sudden the, the helicopter shows up. Well, what <laughs> happened was uh, my irrigation pump station had gone down and, and, uh, I was worried that it wasn't going to run that night. It was real hot. So at that time I had a suburban uh, and Nate, my son, I don't, I don't remember how old Nate was at the time, but I said, Hey, you want to stay on the golf course with me? He had a great interest in, in the golf course. So he and I uh, went out at dark, the irrigation started and uh, I pulled the suburban down there and we had an air mattress in the back. And I don't know what time it was. It was, probably close to midnight, uh, Cedar Rapids had a nice contingent of helicopters uh, that the police department used. And, and over the top of us, all of a sudden, there's a helicopter with its lights shining down on us. <laughs> and so I got in the truck and I headed for the parking lot and I got to the parking lot and police came, came out in full force, uh, trying to figure out what I was doing driving on the golf course. And, and uh, they, they, I was right on the exit of number nine uh, the ninth hole, and I said, hey, we got to move because the irrigation is about ready to come on right here. And just as we moved, the irrigation came on, and and then they, I guess they kind of knew we were legit. But <laughs> They believed you because of that. <laughs> it was just oh, one of those, one yeah. Of those things. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I like I said, I was I was very glad to see that, uh, you know, that, that story had had grown legs and it, it uh, you would, you would remember it. Cause I was like, oh, I don't want to ask. And then you did not remember it. So I was just going to say, Rick, comforting to know you have, uh, you had that kind of surveillance uh, on the nights you weren't there. On, on that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That uh, those helicopters were quite a thing back in the, in the nineties. They, they you used to see them everywhere. And uh, I think they had one of the largest helicopter forces in the country at wow. that time. That's wild. Rick, so uh, you, you get the job back at, at Des Moines Golf um, 2006. Uh, you had been there. What, what do you kind of remember from kind of those those early days when you did come back? I couldn't I couldn't believe, uh, you know, Elmcrest is 117 acres. Des Moines Golf's 475. Uh, the first two things that struck me when I came back, I couldn't believe how long it took me to get across the golf course. <laughs> and there's a dang interstate right next to us and there was noise. You know, I just kind of, I wasn't used to that, that, uh, that interstate noise on the south side of the golf course, but the, the trees had grown up so much. Uh, at that time, when I came back, there was over 5,500 trees on property. Bill had, Bill had inventoried them all, had them all categorized by, by species and where they were at and, so I knew that number and I was just, uh, it was amazing to me that I, right away we knew we had to do something with trees because they needed pruning, they needed to be thinned out, the grass and the rough was was thin. Uh, mm -hmm. So that really was our first focus the first couple of years I was back. 
uh, Rick, will you kind of talk about it more recently, you know, the, the renovations of the, of the four nines at, um, at Des Moines golf, obviously leading up to the, to the Solheim cup. So, so really, uh, even though those renovations didn't start until, uh, 2013 mm -hmm. in 2007, uh, the club, the club had, had, had renovated their bunkers before the senior open in the late nineties. And those bunkers uh, were high face sides. So every time it rained, it would wash the sand down and wash the good Iowa soil down through the sand. And that sand became contaminated and the bunkers, uh, the drainage quit working on them. So they knew they, they needed to redo the bunkers. And that kind of started the process. They, they said, let's redo the bunkers. And I said, well, who's your architect? And our original architect here at Des Moines Golf was Pete Dye. It was, it was Pete's, uh, like his 12th golf course that he'd done in his career. And at that time, uh, after that, Bill Byers, uh, Bill was a guy that was, again, very much like me. No gray in his air in his life it was all black and white, and everything in Pete Dye's life was gray. I mean, Pete would draw something, but it would change dramatically by, by from what he drew on paper to what he did in the field. He was just an artist, and, and uh, he was always doing changes. And I think that frustrated Bill uh, during his career. So Bill would get other architects in here. We had Jim Spears, we had uh, Roger Packard, Larry Packard. Uh, and then we had Rick Jacobson. And when I asked the club, who would you have for an architect to do these renovations? They said, who would you get? And I said, you know, before uh, before Pete Dye dies, let's get him back. And Jim Cutter, our GM at the time, had worked with Pete at Crooked Stick. Uh, he called Pete, and uh, lo and behold, Pete came out. Uh, I think in I, – I can't remember the year, but uh, – First time he came out was in late, or excuse me, early November of that year, and we walked all 36 holes that day. And I remember asking, I said, Mr. Dye, when's the last time you walked 36 holes? And he stopped dead in his tracks. He looked at me and said, yesterday. <laughs> the, guy could, the guy was a walker. I mean, oh, we walked 36 God. holes. We get to the 18th hole in the north course, par five, over 600 yards. It's, it's dark. It's cold. And he says, I got to go back to the tee to look at this hole again. And he walked all the way back to the tee. I mean, he was just an incredible guy to walk with and be part of. But fast forwarding, uh, he was back a couple times. He, he brought one of his associates, Tim Liddy, uh, another fellow architect from Indiana. And he said, Tim's your guy. He's, he's the guy that knows what I want, how to do it. And he should be your architect. And, and uh, you know, Pete did a, Pete and Tim did a master plan for us, if you will. And that's really what started then you know, in 2013. Uh, we, had, we had made plans to start in 13 and, and do nine holes a year. And uh, originally it was going to be front nine, back nine on both courses. And that changed a little bit when we found out uh, in the summer of 13 that we, we had gotten the, uh, we were awarded the Solheim Cup. So, we wanted to make sure we did the Solheim Cup courses, uh, you know, prior to that to that date, and and so we had to just refocus on what we did and what, and what holes we did and how we did them. But it really worked out doing four, four, you know all four nines nine holes a year, and 
uh, it was a great accomplishment by this club to, to undertake that and do it. Rick, and, and for those that either weren't at the Solheim Cup or, or that aren't aware that, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of the, the Solheim course that you mentioned, that's kind of the kind of the inside of the course, I like to say. Is that kind of how you describe it? I, I Well, to be honest with you, it was uh, it was the first 18 holes that Pete uh, drew up for Des Moines Golf. Okay. So first, it was the first 18 holes that were built. And then, uh, the you know, so that opened up. I believe in 68 and then in 69, the other 18 opened up and then they divided them between North and South. But really those, uh, those interior hole, holes are, we call it the composite golf course. It's really the best holes of the golf course because they're away from university Avenue, away from Jordan Creek and away from the interstate. So you, you don't have the, that, that uh, noise, if you will, or the traffic, from from the from those roads, and I really think it's the best, you know, eighteen holes that we have. Rick, you you mentioned you know, you you find out that you're awarded the Solheim Cup kind of in the middle of your um, renovation process. Can you just kind of talk about how that how that all worked and and what went into that leading up to the Solheim Cup? You know, uh, we had some board members that uh, that is you know we we wanted to host another tournament. You know, the club. The club had a policy; they did not want to host a an annual tournament like you know, like a principal charity classic or something like that. But they wanted to they wanted to host a tournament. So after uh, having the most successful senior open in '99, mm -hmm. uh, there was a few years there where they they did not talk about doing much, and uh, it came back to the forefront. Uh, we we kind of checked around and and. Uh, and I don't remember who it was, but uh, they checked with the LPGA. They they made inquiries. Uh, LPGA sent officials here, uh, and it's really quite remarkable to me that we landed the tournament because they came out in uh, 2012 uh, touring the golf course, and it was not going to be a golf course that was going to be the same. I mean, all the bunkers were changing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tees were changing. Some green locations were changing, and they really put faith, uh, I guess, in us to get that done, and and we did it. And uh, so, you know, it was a totally different golf course from when they first were here to when the actual golf course that they played. You know how much, um, I guess, the market of Des Moines might have played into them awarding it, meaning, and, and I think what I'm asking is, you know, a little bit smaller of a of a city compared to a Chicago, like we were talking about earlier, and and just knowing that the interest would probably be there from the fan standpoint, based on the '99 Senior Open. Well, bit you know, Chad, if you if you look at Iowa, there's no professional sports in Iowa. You know, no professional football, baseball. You know, at the at the upper level. I mean, we we do have the you know minor leagues and baseball and hockey and and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But at that time, you know, like when we hosted the Senior Open, uh, it was it was just proof that if that if you build it, they will come. And and it was the largest grossing Senior Open in history. It still holds that distinction. And so they knew uh, if we could get a sponsor uh, here in Des Moines uh, to help sponsor the tournament, uh, that we could we could host a successful Solheim. And and that's what happened. I mean. 
the club did an RFP with a sponsor already in, in mind that said that they would support it. And uh, when we applied, uh, it, it came down to two or three places and, and really Des Moines won out. And I'm really happy that we were that way because the state of Iowa again supported golf and they wanted to see it. It was, it was amazing how many people were here that day or that whole week, you know? Yeah, it, it was. And we were out there for most of the week and, and got to see firsthand. I mean, you, you guys had done so much prep leading up to that, but then that week was not the best weather for you either. I know we had quite a bit of rain, if I'm remembering that correctly. And and you guys had to handle all that and probably just provided a little bit extra stress for you, I would imagine. You know, the uh, leading up to it, the, the two weeks leading up to the tournament, there's absolutely, you know, it was August 17th was the start date. Uh, we had no rain whatsoever. So leading up to it, uh, things were very firm, very fast and dry. And then that Saturday night, I believe we got just over an inch, inch and a half of rain. And that really changed the complexity of what we did and how we did it. I know we couldn't mow fairways that day. It was so wet. Uh, but we did produce a pretty good golf course for the for the final 18. You know? So very proud to say that uh, the staff of Iowa people that were here were, were pretty remarkable to help us out. So. Yeah. And you guys weren't just getting 18 holes ready, right. by the way. We were the first golf course to host uh, on the, in the United States side, the first golf course to hold the Junior Solheim and the Solheim at the same facility. The Junior Solheim played the other the other 18 holes and uh, the, you know, the Solheim players played the interior 18. And, uh, you know, for me, it means everything to me you know, probably goes back to what Larry Larry Glatson always said, where uh, you treat kids with respect, and and uh, those junior Solheim players, I wanted to give them the same conditions that the that the Solheim players were were getting, and so we worked very hard to duplicate uh, the same on both golf courses, and I think we did, and I think uh, hopefully those those young ladies remember that and uh, as a good experience for both sides, you know. It, uh, we tried to produce a, a very good golf course for them both, and very proud to say that, that it happened here. Rick, you mentioned you know a lot of your your volunteers that week were Iowa superintendents and and you know friends from I think you had some others from the Midwest. Can you just talk about how important that was to you? Well, you know, for me, uh, a lot of these Iowa guys and gals don't have an opportunity to to uh, volunteer at, at big tournaments like this. So uh, it meant a lot to me to, to ask them first and they wholeheartedly supported us. I think we had 80 to 100 uh, people from across the state that came in every day and, and helped us get both golf courses ready. Uh, you know, I had a few uh, people, you know, Steve Cook uh, came from Chicago. I had worked the Ryder Cup for Steve and he returned the favor for me. I had a gentleman named Kevin Ross out of Colorado. And then I had some ladies uh, that raked bunkers for me every day. It was very important to me to have ladies out there uh, for a ladies event. I think it, I think it, it showed great uh, diversification and, and, you know, now that's kind of a hot topic with ladies in golf, but 
at that time, it was really important to me to have some young ladies out there raking bunkers. I had one from England and one from North Carolina. I had uh, some local ladies uh, that helped do it. So it, it was pretty cool. Rick, uh, you know, but before the Solheim Cup fight, if I have my my numbers and 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 notes here right, you were you earned the the Master Greenskeeper distinction, uh, sixty number sixty seven um, on that list. And I actually just looked it up uh, this morning. There's actually eighty eight, only eighty eight of them in the world now. Um, that's administrated by the British and International Golf Greenskeepers Association. Tell us about that and kind of how that uh, all works. So. In 2012, uh, so Nate, who's my son, has been has been here uh, almost 15 years now. Uh, Nate's our North Course Superintendent, so he has the same position I had when I was here the first time. Uh, but I was doing Nate's review and talking to him about becoming Class A Superintendent, but about becoming CGCS, and he looked at me and said, uh, "Why aren't you doing more?" I'm like. Well, what do you mean? I'm already CGCS. And he says, no, if you look at uh, guys like Steve Cook, Curtis Tyrell, uh, these guys are all master greenkeepers. And, you know, they've hosted Ryder Cups. Uh, why aren't you? And uh, so it kind of threw me back a little bit. And, and I thought about it. And I thought, well, he's right. I I, I need to look into that. So I looked into it and, you know, I wanted, I wanted Des Moines golf. We were going to be on a world stage with European players and I wanted them to know that the golf course that we were producing and the people that we are, were just as uh, qualified or had the same credentials as, as guys that uh, have come before me. So uh, I started the process uh, to do it. You know, you, you, there's a lot of formalities you go through, but ultimately you end up taking a two day test. Day one is five technical questions and it's all given to you uh, either in the spring or in the fall of the year. It's all given to you by the uh, British International Golf and Greenkeeper Association, BIGA. And uh, you pick a proctor and, and at the time, Jeff Wendell, who was the head, head of the Iowa Turfgrass Institute was my proctor. I sat down for the test day one and five technical questions and you have to score 80 percent and the very first question i had no idea what it was which meant i had to score 100 percent on the other four which i failed and so i failed that 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 spring i took the test that fall uh i passed the five technical questions but on the the second day is one essay question and you're given three hours to answer that that question uh, and they tell you, don't write your name. You, you do it this way, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, I, I wrote 10 or 11 pages. And at the end, I signed my name. So I didn't follow directions <laughs> and they plucked me. Oh, wow. So come back the next spring, uh, take the test again. And remarkably, I I passed. Uh, it was I was very emotional. It was a yeah. You know, it was a big deal. I mean, you think about uh, 67th in the world, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the only guy in Iowa to do it. it you know, I was very proud of that. So kind of cool. Yeah, as, as you should be. Yeah. It's amazing to think of that single essay question 
you know, one question, but they're giving you three hours to answer it. And like you said, you wrote 10 or 11 pages, man. Do you remember what the question was? Uh, I could look it up, Chad. I don't, I don't remember exactly. You know, it, it's more of a case study type thing instead of a okay. question. They, they give you a case study and they give you all this information and you have to, you have to write it in, you know, and the, the hard, the hardest part for me is, you know, if you're talking about, you're not talking about acres or, or mm-hmm. ounces per thousand in right. chemicals and stuff. Everything is metric. Right. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. hect- it's in hectares, it's in grams per, per meter squared, you know, things like that. And uh, that took a lot for me to, to uh, lot, I studied a lot the metric system. I studied a lot on how to uh, write in the European style. I mean, right. you write the word favor in America, it's F-A-V-O-R and it's F-A-V. Oh, you are, you know, in the UK. Sure. And I, I, I didn't yep. want them to realize that I was an American. I wanted them to judge me on the content of my material. I studied a lot about the English uh, language and, and the how to write, and I, it paid off. Do you have any idea, Rick, how many people try this every year? I mean, you you took three times, you said. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people try and never get it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that try. You know, I don't know. Uh, Bigley keeps that pretty close to the vest as to how many people uh, gotcha. do the process each year. You know, I've, I've had friends that have come behind me now, uh, you know, like Matthew Wharton, uh, Matthew, he's lucky he passed it all the very first time, you know, but uh, I know a couple other guys that have done it. Uh, one guy took him three times. Uh, I was just with Greg Jones out of Omaha. I think he he flunked at the same thing like I did a couple times and then finally got it. So uh, it's it's a it's a career achievement. You know, it's, it's something to be very proud of. And uh, I learned a lot and it's really opened up doors for me to to go other places and meet other people and learn other ways of greenskeeping. You know, I used to hate that word. Uh, I always wanted to become a golf course superintendent, but really I'm, I'm a greenkeeper. You know, it's opened up a lot of doors for me. So it's, it was well worth doing. Yeah, no, Rick, uh, I, again, you know, congratulations on that. Cause I know that that means a, it means a, a ton, you know, that that's awesome. Thank you. Talk to us about some of the things as you look back that have, you know, has, have either advanced or, or just some of the major changes that, that come to mind in, in your world, uh, you know, taking care of turf and everything else? You know, we, when I got into turf, uh, obviously everything was quick coupler irrigation. You'd plug a quick coupler in or you, a quick coupler in a hose. So, so to see all the advances in irrigation where now I'm running, I'm running my irrigation off my cell phone to, to an iPad or the guys are running them with radios or, uh, we never used to have, you know, I, I've always carried a soil probe on my cart. If you look at my soil probe, you can tell it's been banged in the ground many, many times. I'm still very old school. I've, I've got to pull a plug of turf out, smell it and feel it, and rub it between my fingers and see how moist it is. But now everything uh, is done with moisture meters. You know, it's all, everything's managed to a number, which is, which is a much better way to do it as to keeping the, the turf, you know, right at that that edge where it's either too wet or too dry. Uh, we never had a computer, you know, back in the old days, uh, you know, didn't even know what they were. You know, I, I remember going to Elmcrest and they had a computer and 
at the DOS prompt, I thought you could write a letter. I remember typing a letter and hitting <laughs> enter, and it it just went error. I mean, uh, I had no idea. I had yeah, no idea sure. what I was doing. Uh, sure. You know, back in the old days, we used to top dress with a with a trailer full of, of top dressing material that we mixed ourselves and shoveled it out on greens. Where now we're you know, top dressing is, is you know, you, you have toe behind top dressers, but now guys are top dressing with fertilizer spreaders and kill drying sand and so light you plus one spin of the irrigation that puts it in. And I mean, there's just remarkable changes in airification equipment, all the different types of airifiers, the the mowers that, that we used back then to the mowers we use now, the frequency of clip and, and the height of cut, you know, height of cut is, has gone from you know, we were mowing at three sixteenths of an inch, which uh, I don't even know how many thousands that is. One hundred eighty-seven thousandths, three divided by sixteen. You know, that's one hundred eighty-seven thousandths. Where now guys are down at ninety thousandths of an inch mowing greens. You know, and and maintaining good turf at that level, or hundred thousandths. You know, so it it's the changes have been remarkable. You know, the, the only thing that hasn't changed uh, over the years is divots and ball marks. <laughs> <laughs> true very true very true they're still they're still there you know they and they always will be well rick I, at least on the outside my experience with you i will say is that you appear to be someone who's embraced the technology um you've shown me stuff on your phone like hey look at this you know radar stuff i have now or it tells me exactly how much water fell and all this stuff and uh i'm just curious if that like sometimes you just wish it wasn't quite as complicated as maybe, or maybe it's more simple now. I don't know, but yeah. No, I, Chad, I, I think that's, it goes both ways. You, technology, if you embrace it, if you can learn it, you, if you have time and uh, the resources to, to utilize it, it's a great thing. I think there's times when it can be so much data, you know, now, now when we, you know, when we mow greens, we're, we're measuring clip volume. We're measuring, you know, the, the the step meter reading to the to the uh, how firm it is to how dry it is to I mean the, all these things that we're putting into into a spreadsheet and now the USGA is coming out with the with the G3 ball that you drop and, you, and it it does all that for you uh, I'm anxious I think I'm going to get one of those balls this spring to try that and and use with with their new Deacon program you know so uh, that's awesome. It is awesome if you, again, if you have the, the time and the ability to to do it and understand it and use it and learn what it's doing for you. Uh, you know, we've learned a lot over the last couple of years just measuring the clipping volume and, and how certain things in Mother Nature, how it affects the grass. And, and uh, it's totally surprised us, you know. I mean, you know, how big a flush of growth we get after a natural rain is just um, remarkable. Uh, we never used to think that happened, but now we have data to prove it. You get a rain, and two days later, you got a flush of growth, and you wonder what happened, you know. And, uh, yeah. and we're seeing that, and we've got the data to prove it. So it's it's all interesting again, but you got to be able to to do it and use it and understand it. Yeah, some you know might feel like data overload, like you said at some point, but as long as you're taking the time to learn and understand it, it's it's tools to use in the field. Then you know. A lot of people, when they talk about advancement in golf and distance and all that sort of stuff, they talk about the ball and the clubs and all of that. And then they never 
talk about the maintenance side of it and you know how fast fairways run now compared to 20 30 years ago and and all that side of it like that's right. a part of the distance that we're dealing with as well yeah i all that all that comes into play and uh i think i think now the the superintendent of today uh is probably a harder job than it was you know 30 years ago you know it, because of all the all the advances in golf and the data and, and everything that's that's come around. Rick, can you talk about um, kind of over your career um, the the issue of water, just with the efficiencies and, and just the importance of of being aware of that, you know, in this in, in today's kind of world, I guess. You know, to to me, uh, Clint, water is the most single important uh, natural resource there is. Uh, without it, none of us could survive. And and so so many people over the years have misused water from uh, from golf course superintendents to the the homeowner. How many times have you seen it rain and you drive down a street and somebody's irrigation is running in their home yard? You know that's a misuse of water. Or their their irrigation's running clear out into the street and that's just runoff right away into the you know, into the sewer system. I mean, obviously it's getting back in the river, but it's a waste of water. Uh, so to me, uh, being able to manage a golf course as big as this, as big as this club is, we have over 3000 sprinklers, but you know, we, we work very hard to make sure they're all adjusted properly, that we have the right nozzles in the heads where they're at. Uh, we know how many minutes each head runs, uh, we can we can change patterns on on sprinkler heads now, and and then we can still look at uh, at the data and see that if things are water excuse me too much or too little and you know so we we work pretty hard on making sure all of our spacings are right on our heads and and they're leveled and uh, it, it's a big job and, and uh, if people don't do this I think at some point in in our really in the future, uh, water is going to be a, an even bigger, hotter topic, you know, so uh, utilizing it, you know, having rain, you know, ponds that collect rainfall and being able to draw out of those ponds and not use wells or or different aquifers and, and things like that are, are very important. And I think, I think not only the golf course superintendent, but the golfer has to understand uh, what's keeping that golf course alive and and do we you know do we need to have it as green as it used to be you know uh, can it be brown a little bit and and can can some of the edges be brown and uh, and still survive and I think we're all learning uh, to go that other way if you will you know for years we went trying to be totally green and now now it's the it's moving back the other way, I think, and which is a good thing. It's just trying to learn how much how much stress you can put on the grass plant and how many rounds of golf you can run over it with and, and still have it survive. It, it's a it's a big issue. Well, and speaking of stress, Rick, I, I just wanted to ask one question about you know the golf boom we've seen in the last couple of years because of the I think I think most of it's attributed to the pandemic and people working from home that got them brought them out to the golf course a little bit more that particular summer and it's led to you know it's led to more golfers and or people playing more rounds and 
in the last couple of years that's had to affect on you guys on preparing the golf course um have you have you instituted any policies out there so that people can't start by a certain time just to give you some free reign and get your work done without you know, having I, you know, golfers out there all the time i'm very lucky here at the club uh they they set a morning start time and they've always adhered to that which has really made it good for us uh you know that first pandemic year so i think our average rounds uh, and i'm talking for 36 holes you know our average was close to 48 to 49,000 rounds a year. Then the pandemic year, first pandemic year, we had just uh, right at 66,000. And then wow. the second year, we were down uh, in the mid mid to low 50s. And this last year was more back towards that that average number that we had, but it's still still pretty high. I mean. You know, there's some some months where we have ten thousand rounds, and that's that's a big month for us. But the wear and tear on on the golf course is is very noticeable, especially on par three tees that were built to to accommodate, you know, forty thousand rounds a year, and you're putting sixty thousand on them. You know, they're just getting beat to death. The mm -hmm. the uh, wear and tear on your golf carts. You know, our golf cart fleet we own. Uh, we typically used to run it for five years, and uh, this is year four, and we, we've decided to, to change it out because the, the carts had just seen that much more wear and tear on them. Uh, you know, I can't tell you just how much I spend a year in tires. You know, just the wear and tear. We have concrete car paths throughout the whole facilities, and the wear and tear just on tires uh, – it's a remarkable how many we have to change just because they wear out after after four years, you know. Uh, but overall, the golf course uh, with probably probably the biggest stresses that that I see have been on on people's staff, uh, especially these last couple of years. You know, now you you don't have many young people wanting to get into the into the turf business or into the service industry as a whole. You know whether it's in the clubhouse or you know out on the golf course, and that has stressed a lot of people and, and forced a lot of people to rethink their careers and and change career paths because it's not easy. You know it's it's a hard job to to get up early in the morning and work weekends, and you're in all you know from cold to hot to sun to shade to rain to hail to whatever. You know uh, you still have to put on a golf course every day and have a smile on your face. So it's it's a, it's a hard business for, for, you know, whether it's in the golf shop or clubhouse or pool or tennis or on the golf course. I'm deal with weather because you can't control that. Right. Mother nature always wins. Rick, changing gears a, a little bit, you know, you've talked about um, several of your, your mentors, you know, coming up through the system. Um, and I know you've mentored a lot of, of guys uh, that have gone on to, to be head golf superintendents and, and other, um, other areas of, of the turf business. Can you just talk about kind of look, reflecting back on that a little bit? You know, it, it's, uh, I definitely have had people, you know, like Charlie Pribble, Bill Byers, Gene Jennings, who made a huge difference, you know, in my life and Oscar miles in Chicago. Uh, you know, the multitude of friends that I've had in the business, you know, you, you don't get through this day in, day out without having people you can call and, uh, you know, and bounce questions off of. 
I don't care what level you're at. You, it's always been great. You know, I, when I was in Cedar Rapids, Tom Feller was there for me all the time. Uh, you know, here in Des Moines, Chris Cohen and, and John Temme when he was at Wakanda, John Austin when he was at Hyperion. You know, we all we all keep in touch. It's it's a it's a brotherhood at, at our level. It's not a you know, we're not against each other as competing. We're all here in the same same thing, doing the same the same job and, and so you're always up against the same same type of elements or problems. So it's always been great to have Iowa superintendents uh, that you can count on and lean on and and talk to, you know, over the years, it's been, it's been good for me. And, uh, you know, we just hosted the Des Moines area superintendents association Christmas party. And it was great to see over a hundred people there, you know, that, that just come and talk and, and have fun and let their hair down a little bit. And <laughs> you, you guys were there and, and we appreciate that. And uh, it's just a, it's just a big brotherhood, I think, you know, and, and I'm definitely an anomaly, you know, at, uh, in my sixties now, you know, being around for so long that, you know, it's a young man's game and it's, uh, it's been, a, it's been a good run. Well, Rick, uh, I, I sure appreciate you coming on the podcast. Always, it's always good to see you when we're out at Des Moines golf or, or, or if we're at the turf show and, and catch up. So I, I appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's great talking to you and I appreciate all you do for Iowa golf. And, uh, one, one shameless plug I'm going to put out there is, yes. Uh, any anybody that's in golf needs to, to contribute to the uh, your future golf house that you're trying to build, and and I think that's important for for everybody in Iowa, whether you're a superintendent, a player, uh, working in a clubhouse, you know, anything you can give to the Iowa Golf Association to help them get this thing built is a is a great thing. So good luck with that. Thank you, Rick. We we appreciate that, and. Um... We're we're in a good place with that, and, and hope hope that we can continue to make progress so that we can break ground this spring. But we think that is going to happen. So thanks. Well, thanks good. good luck with that. that. Thanks. It's safe travels with uh, with the vacation coming up. I know know that you and Sherry will probably have a wonderful time down south. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Yep. Take right. care. Okay.